0: I'd invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. The scripture reading in the bulletin um, spans verses 14 through 21, but we'll actually read the three verses prior to that because it sets something of the context for this particular story. So Mark chapter 8, we'll be reading from verses 11 through 21. We'll be reading out of the English Standard Version translation. The Pharisees came... And began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign, a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, "Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation." And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. Now I trust you're following me. What does verse 21 say? Read it out loud. Do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit. To be those who would hear your word. Even the instructions given by the Lord Jesus in the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel itself as your true word, your very word to us. That we might, by the working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, be those who would understand and who would believe and who would respond in faith and obedience to all that Jesus has taught us in light of all that Jesus has done for us, to the honor of his name, so that we might be truly those who, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are salt and light to this generation. In his name we pray, amen. As a former high school teacher, let me tell you what I see in this passage. What do I see going on in this particular story? What I see is Jesus introducing the next topic, the next area of subject study in the school of discipleship. But he discovers that the disciples have failed to grasp the lessons one great overarching lesson of the primary months of ministry. Ever since Jesus sent the disciples out two by two to proclaim the kingdom, when they returned, there have been a series of events and experiences which the disciples with Christ have gone through that were teaching a a, a tremendously significant lesson about the identity and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, instead of being able to develop a new lesson, to be able to go into a new area of subject matter that Jesus desires to teach, he has to reproach his disciples for their failure to grasp the significance of the instruction they have already received. Now, looking at the passage this way, The question to ask is why did the disciples fail to be ready for this next lesson in discipleship? The answer is at the core of what often afflicts us as Christians in our own spiritual growth, in our own slowness to mature in Christ. This is the lesson we need to ponder. We too often have more concern for what the Apostle Paul calls civilian affairs or earthly matters. How to take care of ourselves in this world than we do about the dangers of what will take us down, what will affect us spiritually in a negative way. Things that will cause us to take our eyes off of the kingdom of God. Which is to say, we are so often preoccupied with the things of this world that we don't keep our eyes focused on the kingdom of heaven, nor do we always understand the nature of the spiritual dangers surrounding us that would inhibit our growth in grace. Now, with that perspective in mind, we'll move through Mark's account, Mark's story here, noting three aspects of what Mark is presenting here. The first would be the mind of Christ as he seeks to warn his disciples. The second would be the matter of concern that Jesus is warning them about. And then thirdly, the spiritual, as it were, denseness of the disciples. I want us to consider, first of all, the mind of Christ in in warning his disciples as we see it given to us in verses 14 and the first part of verse 15. There's some context and background ...to what is on the mind of Christ at this point. Uh, Verse 14 takes place, if you look at it, in the boat. They're traveling across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Once again, uh, they've often, in the last uh, several episodes that Mark has been telling us about, been moving in and around and across and back and forth the Sea of Galilee. So now they're moving eastward, away from the Galilean area away from the area that is mostly Jewish to an area that's going to be more mixed in terms of Jews and Gentiles. And they're doing so because as Jesus had landed on the western side of Galilee, the Pharisees had immediately gathered and began to attack him once again. They were arguing with Jesus. They were seeking a sign from heaven. And if you remember what we covered a few weeks ago, in the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus was to be recognized as a false prophet. Already they had declared that Jesus was doing all of his miracles through the power of Beelzebul. Uh, They were not, therefore, true signs from heaven. And the chief reason that they were demanding from him now another sign, a sign from heaven, was because they hoped to be able to put him to a test that he would miserably fail. So then they would have a solid basis for the desire to present his accusation against him that would destroy him both in terms of ministry and life. In essence, they were saying, you can do miracles. Yes, we recognize that. These are from the devil. Now we need to see you to do a miracle that is unequivocally a miracle from heaven itself. Now, truthfully, Jesus had already done more miraculous things than any of the Old Testament prophets had ever performed. So that the Pharisees, should have believed if belief was basically a matter of watching and seeing miracles. We need to remember then the response of Jesus to this test. There was a refusal to engage his enemies on the matter of truth dropping down to their level because there was a deep dishonesty in their attitude and their approach. They were not interested in the truth. Jesus felt compelled to deal with people only when the truth was truly at stake. Therefore, Jesus refuses to continue this fruitless interaction with the Pharisees. He departs with his disciples by the boat. They move toward the other side of the sea. Now, consider then his state of mind while he's in the boat, having just left this encounter with the Pharisees. It's apparent that that is what is on his mind. At some point on the voyage, and Mark is sparse in detail, so we don't know, without any conversational prelude, Jesus issues this warning. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, it is clear there is no conversational prelude leading up to what Jesus says. Uh, We know this is the case because of the the great uh, experience of misunderstanding. I mean, the disciples don't get what Jesus is saying. So whether the disciples have been engaged in conversation or whether there had been total silence in the boat, Jesus interrupts their frame of mind with this great and weighty matter which is on his mind. And then as we look at the nature of what Jesus says we need to consider the seriousness with which he says it. There's a double emphasis. Watch out. Beware. Indicating the highest level concern on the part of Christ. This concern is for them because they are the ones who are going to be exposed to this clear and present danger that Jesus is mentioning. The threat is towards them as followers of Christ. Now, symbolically, the threat is called leaven or yeast. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that he explains it as the teachings of the Pharisees. So, obviously, when Jesus is concerned about this leaven as teachings, he's concerned about false doctrines, false teachings. And this tells us something significant about the mind of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ as truth himself sees a clear and present danger to the followers, his followers, disciples, Christians. He sees a clear and present danger that we are exposed to in terms of false doctrines, false teachings, those kinds of things that would be antagonistic toward or contrary to the message of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation in Christ. The seriousness lies in the fact that in the context of the day, what was opposing Jesus from the Pharisees, and then also we shall see from the party of the Herodians, was man-made teachings about God, man-made teachings about salvation and man-made teachings about how someone should live his or her life in this world. The great danger in our day is that we as Christians will accommodate similar kinds of teachings and practices within the church. That we will actually embrace things which endorse the kinds of concerns that Jesus warned us about that he described as dangerous which is, in essence, telling us out of the story. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to have such a mind that we will see that there are ideas and practices and teachings that even arise from within the church that we need to be concerned about because they will seriously distort and destroy the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So that's the first matter that we're concerned about here, this this matter of the frame of mind that Christ has as he's moving across the sea, as he's, as it were, inaugurating a new discussion with his disciples. Now, let's move on then to the matter about which Jesus is concerned, verse 15b. Jesus calls this danger uh, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, both of these groups, the Pharisees and this party of the Herodians, had already shown their hostility to Jesus. Mark mentions this all the way back in chapter 3. When Jesus uh, heals in the synagogue the man with the withered hand, Mark chapter 3, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So from very early on in the ministry of Christ, these two very different groups of Jewish antagonists were coming together to work against Jesus, seeking how to destroy Jesus, joining forces in an unholy collusion. But in this instance, what Jesus is concerned about while he's on the boat with his disciples, in this instance, Jesus is not warning about the danger and threat upon his life, but about what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, referring to their teaching. He's inviting us by this to remember exactly what were the problems with what the Pharisees were teaching, and then by uh, perhaps a deeper digging into the Bible and understanding of what the Herodians were teaching. How do these things present a danger to the followers of Christ? What would the disciples, what should the disciples have known about the Pharisees and about the Herodians? Well, the sect of the Pharisees, they were the most influential religious party in Judaism at the time of Christ. The word Pharisee meant separated. They consider themselves to be separated ones, and the way they separated themselves from worldliness was by a strict adherence, we often say to the law, but in truth, it was a strict adherence to the traditions of the elders, which was most often a false misrepresentation of the law. Uh, They were not committed to the Torah in its purity, they were committed to the Torah, to the law of God, as it passed through the grid of the oral traditions, and, and Jesus had, had, had charged against them many times, as we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark, that this form of understanding the Torah, the law, was nothing other than a crass kind of legalism by which the Jews, the Pharisees themselves, sought to establish their own righteousness before God. Uh, f- furthermore, as we've looked at how the Pharisees operated, we have seen that they placed the oral tradition as the infallible interpretive standard of the Word of God so that where Jesus confronted them and condemned them was that here is what the Word of God actually says, Jesus would say, and here is what you say, and you nullify the Word of God in order to fulfill your own traditions. Now, Does that ring a bell during the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation? Does the rejection of Scripture alone uh, come into mind as we see what the Pharisees were doing? Uh, Did they not have a second standard by which they actually believed they were understanding the Word of God? Is there not a parallel here between the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church having the final say as to what the Word of God says, as we would also see with the Pharisees saying the oral tradition has the final word as to what the Word of God says? In other words, there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new at all under the sun. And the kinds of concerns that Jesus had are the kinds of concerns that the church has always had to address in all of its history, for the last almost 2,000 years. Then the Herodians. The, Mark doesn't tell us much about the Herodians. In fact, the New Testament Gospels themselves tell us very little about the Herodians, so it requires that we look into extra biblical information, historical information, to discover who these people were. Well, they were those who had attached themselves to uh, the ruler, uh, Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of the great King Herod from the birth narrative of Jesus. Uh, he was ruler over the area of Galilee. Uh, religiously, the Herodians were much more like the Sadducees than they were the Pharisees. In fact, uh, some would say that all the Herodians were Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the they were like deists, as it were. They believed in God, but they did not believe in anything else supernatural. They rejected all canonical scripture after the first five books of Moses. You can call them secularist, but essentially they were those who accommodated themselves to the powers and practices of the world for the sake of holding on to their positions a power within the world. They are the very opposite of the Pharisees. On the one hand, a strict adherence to a religious rule of life. Over here, a strong accommodation to the patterns of the world. Legalism. Worldliness. In essence, these are the two things which Jesus is concerned about. What is the leaven that is dangerous to the disciples It's the leaven of legalism, and it's the leaven of worldliness. Let's break this down a little bit further. The term leaven, in the New Testament particularly, is often used in a negative way, not because leaven or yeast in and of itself is evil, but because the nature of leaven is that once it is put into a lump of dough, uh, it's almost impossible to reverse leaven the process by which the leaven works its way all the way through the dough, causing it to rise, causing it to inflate. Without the dough, without the leaven, the lump of dough would remain inert. This is the catalyst that begins to change the very nature of it. Well, that idea is what Jesus is using to say that false teachings of legalism, false teachings of worldliness put into those who are followers of Jesus will begin to work its way out. Now, how do we see this in the church today? Uh, the, The gospel is a gospel of grace. The gospel is a gospel about God canceling our sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so, what can happen with respect to that an understanding of the gospel by grace? Well, people say, well, I need to grow spiritually. What is the quickest false way of looking like you're growing spiritually? Legalism. An outward performance by by which you appear to obey all of the rules of of the Old and the New Testament, Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, all the commandments of Jesus of the New Testament, you outwardly look very, very good because of a strict adherence to these rules and laws and so forth. Or it might be the culture of your church. You notice... That it's only the missionary who is wearing a tie today. There was a day that that was the standard. And if a man didn't wear a tie to church, others would look down upon him. Uh, I got tired of being the only one wearing a tie. <laughs> you know, curse be the tie that binds. But the point is is that this is a man-made imposition upon the grace of the gospel, legalism, by which we, uh, in some sense, want to demonstrate or authenticate or somehow uh, establish our own righteousness. We say it's before God, but it's really before other human beings. And then worldliness. The other danger to the gospel of God's grace is the idea that, well, we've been saved by the cross. Oh, blessed condition. Well, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That's not the gospel. That's the spirit of worldliness that basically takes the grace of God as license. The, the, the sense that, well, because God will forgive whatever I do, then it means that I can do whatever I want. We have seen how that kind of an approach causes the people of God to to lose all sense that they have a holy calling. So the point is, is that these are the things that Jesus now was wanting to address with his disciples. These are the next step in the school of discipleship That his followers need to understand as the future apostles of the church that the gospel of God's grace must be guarded against the leaven of self-righteousness and the leaven of self-indulgence. The gospel calling is a gracious calling, but it's a calling to holiness in terms of how we live. Well, so the lesson gets stopped because of the misunderstanding of the disciples. They don't get it. And so that leads us into our final consideration, how the disciples are not in tune with what Jesus is teaching. And so he has to address their spiritual immaturity, which he does, verses 16 through 21. It requires, as it were, a kind of review of the previous lessons which they have been taught. And and I want us us to notice here that as someone who was a teacher... Uh, the way the world wants us to understand teaching, it says, if your students don't get it, the teacher is at fault. In fact, within the evangelical world, there's someone who has styled themselves as a master teacher who looks at all the New Testament teaching and has claimed the same thing. That if you are a teacher of the Word of God and if your people don't get it, it's because you're not a very good teacher. By that grid of evaluation. Why is Jesus having to reinstruct his disciples? Why couldn't they get it the first time if he was, so, quote, such a great teacher? Well, the problem is, is that's not the paradigm of the New Testament. The paradigm of the New Testament is, is that the best teacher who's ever walked this planet can teach, and human beings won't get it, necessarily unless there is a working of God's grace in their heart and life, and unless their heart deeply wants the truth that Jesus is presenting. So, let's consider then what's going on in this. Verse 16, the disciples' confusion. They're not tracking with what Jesus has been saying. and Their confusion appears twofold. In the first place, they begin to discuss the lack of bread. Uh, One loaf is all they have, uh, not the several loaves they normally would have needed to provision them for the trip. So they take the reference to leaven in a very literal way, connecting it to bread. They think that Jesus is somehow warning them not to accept any bread from the enemies who are the Pharisees and the Herodians. But then in the second place, they think that that Jesus is also disappointed with them. He's displeased with them because they didn't provision uh, their trip with the bread that they would need, that Jesus is speaking out of some kind of, of disappointment. Verse 17, Jesus confronts the situation. Mark gives a very full and complete record of what goes on here. It's a series of seven questions which Jesus poses to his disciples. And you can almost picture yourself and picture Jesus expressing this. And you probably feel like, if you were one of the disciples, that this is the moment of comeuppance. Uh, clearly uh, the word in a mild sense can be called a rebuke. Clearly it's an admonishment. Clearly it is correction. Clearly Jesus is conveying an attitude. You didn't get this, but you should have. So let's look at the questions. First of all, Jesus, "Why why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Because really, given the past history, in the past three or four months... Uh, Concern about bread is totally unnecessary. And that's really the big point in this series of questions. Then Jesus asked, Do you not yet perceive or understand? In essence, he's saying, you should have exercised your mind a little bit and applied your former experiences to what's happening now. They should have recalled their former lessons as applicable to their present situation. The third question he asks is this. Are your hearts hardened? That's the question that stings the most because of what Jesus has already said and what the Gospel of Mark has already taught concerning the hardened hearts of the Pharisees. So Jesus is, is forcing his disciples to examine themselves Are they, in some sense, resisting the lessons which Jesus is presenting? Do they have teachable hearts? Then fourthly, verse 18, Jesus is going to hammer that particular point further. He actually invokes the words of the Old Testament prophets. When he says, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, these are the words of Jeremiah, these are the words of Ezekiel, uh, used to rebuke Judah. Jeremiah 5:21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, have ears but hear not. Ezekiel 12:2. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Again, the challenge to the disciples is this Your heart, what's its condition? Is it teachable? The fifth question Jesus asks And do you not remember? Jesus is saying, Do you not remember the two great miracles that you've experienced when I multiplied the bread? It's a reasonable ex- expectation on Christ's part. The disciples should have paid more attention. The disciples should have pondered the meaning of these events. They should have remembered. The seventh question, Jesus asked, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. Now, the point of forcing them to remember how much was left over was to show them again a lesson repeated, the superabundance of the ability of Christ to provide for their need. Having only one loaf of bread was no problem. Having no bread would have been no problem. And then the last question that Jesus asked. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? That is, do you not yet understand that you are not in danger of starving if you are with Jesus? You are not in danger of storms capsizing your boat and you drowning if you are with Jesus. You are not in danger of illness or paralysis or blindness or deafness or demon possession if you are with Jesus. But because their minds were so focused upon the physical aspects and dimensions of life, they were missing the spiritual truth and spiritual concerns which were actually upon the heart of Christ himself. Now that's the same lesson that you and I must ponder we too often have more concern for what Paul calls civilian pursuits, earthly matters, how to take care of ourselves in this world, than we do about the kind of spiritual dangers that might take us down, things that might affect us in a negative spiritual way, things that would take our eyes off of the kingdom of God, because we are wrapped up in the affairs of this world. So, let's apply the gospel then to this lesson. First, since you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Second, set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things. Thirdly, why? Why? Because you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here is the great truth of who you are. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you out of the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. And therefore, lastly, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It is by the Gospel. That we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Mark and thank you for the lessons that we've been learning as we've been traveling through this uh, terse, uh, short, uh, sometimes parsimonious Gospel, and yet filled with all manner of deep lessons for us as those who would want to live and honor the Lord Jesus. Above all, we thank you for the Gospel of your Son by which we live. And because of this gospel, we can face all of our days in the confidence that you are with us. And Lord God, we thank you that this gospel prepares us for our last day of life in this world and eternal glory to follow. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.